rendering the last three verses of our epistle reading a little bit more literally. Our mouth is open to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. There's no constriction in us, but there is constriction in your bowels. Uh, It's more elegantly translated constriction in your affections. But a hint is where Greeks put the seat of the emotions. There's a closing off in your uh, affections. In return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I missed you all last weekend. I teach twice a year, January and June, for a little over a week each time in Jacksonville at the Robert E. Weber Institute for Worship Studies. And it's a great honor to represent you there. But I'm always really glad to get back to be here with you. Uh, Sherry and I almost lost a son to drowning when he was two. And many of you know that story. Determined that that not happen again, we enrolled our boys in a program that taught infants how to survive in the water. It was not a program for the faint of heart, either for the little ones or for their parents. The idea was to teach the infants how to get air by learning to float on their backs and also to teach toddlers how to find the edge of the pool so somebody could come and rescue them. The children did not enjoy this process. They cried on the way to the lesson, and they slept on the way back. The stress of the lessons on the little ones and on their parents was almost unbearable. But we had seen the consequences of kids not knowing how to survive in the water, and we knew that in central Florida there were too many pools and lakes and too many stories with sad endings. And I realize even telling a story like this uh, brings painful memories to some because there are too many sad endings to these stories. Ours happily ended well. And because we wanted more happy endings, we resisted the temptation to shut down, to close ourselves off from letting this continue to happen. There were so many times when we would watch our kids terrorized going in the water and learning these, learning these skills. There were so many times when Sherry and I just wanted to say, enough already, this is too stressful, let's just shut it down. But we wouldn't let, we, we wouldn't let our kids shut down. Happily, within a few weeks, we were confident that they could survive if something happened, But it didn't come about apart from tears and stress naps along the way. Eventually, they became like tadpoles in water. As I read today's passages, 
I was struck. I was struck, first of all, with the imagery in Paul of shutting down as opposed to opening out. And I, I found myself noticing in, in uh, Job and in Mark similar temptations to shut down. Enough already. This is too stressful. Job, your life gets turned upside down and you think God's got it in for you. Message to Job. Now amplified, to be sure, by hindsight from a New Testament point of view. Listen, when your world gets turned upside down, don't shut down to the possibility that behind the scenes, as took place in Job, where the principalities and the powers dwell, God is adding insult to the fatal injury he has inflicted on the evil one at the cross. By your sheer determination to hang in and accept that at least for now, all you may hear from above is, where were you when I laid out the earth? Where were you when I laid out the, the boundaries of the sea? Chill. Some answers are just not going to come to you for now. In Mark, we're with Jesus in the boat. The world around us has gone insane. And we think that Jesus is asleep in the stern. Message to his disciples. Don't mistake the tranquility that he has for inattention or lack of control. He doesn't share yours or mine or CNN's or Fox's hysteria. What the times call for when things are out of control all around us is courage. What our translation masks is that it's not being afraid that Jesus rebukes his disciples for but rather being timid or cowardly. Those of you who've had a chance to study the language, it's ki deloi esta. Why are you timid? Why are you cowardly? In tumultuous times, what the Lord calls for from you and me is fortitude, courage, measure, perspective, wisdom. He's got this. And that's why you can offer something positive in the midst of the storm and not get swept up and drowned by the storm yourself. And then finally, we're with Paul. Here, the Corinthians have received an apostolic spanking because their faith has been so narcissistic, so self-absorbed rather than ambassadorial or missional. And they are tempted to shut down and close themselves off from hearing him. Or they may open out onto a new vista of faith. Hear the transparency of his speaking to them. See the transparency to God's love in his heart and know new levels of engagement and relationship. 
So I'd like to talk with you for a few moments about the Corinthian option. Do I think narcissistically, in a self-absorbed fashion, or do I think ambassadorially about what he's called me to do alongside him to bring good news to a broken and sad world? No church thought they understood Paul's message better than the Corinthians. Let me fill in a little background. The Corinthians understand that Christ is risen and that they are united with Christ, which is good. But they've drawn the wrong inference that they are risen as well. And that's why Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 15, no, 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 you're not risen yet. You need a resurrection. They understand that Christ has begun his reign because of his resurrection. And they, presumably, theirs. Oh, Paul says, you've begun to reign. Oh, that would be nice, because we'd be reigning as well. But because they mistakenly think that they have begun to reign since Christ is reigning, they're going to court, even against each other, to secure their rights. Because, you know what? They're king's kids. They've rightly understood from Paul that Christ has exchanged the poverty of his humiliation for the riches of heaven. And so they infer, and they assume, they presume that they've begun to receive their riches too. And so what they do at the Lord's table is display what they presume is the Lord's blessing on the haves over the have-nots, 1 Corinthians 11. And they show, they're showing off through the virtuosity of their heavenly tongues and prophetic words their hierarchy of spiritual wealth. Moreover, they rightly understand that Paul has taught Christ has brought in new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And with it, thinking in terms of Galatians 3.28, has brought the end of male and female. And so, some Corinthians proudly sleep with anybody, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, while others piously abandon the wedding bed altogether. 1 Corinthians 7. They are so very confused. And so Paul comes with the apostolic paddle. He wants them to understand that they are living in the days of the fulfillment of Israel's longing for an ultimate jubilee. It's a wonderful thing that he does in this passage. Having rebuked them for their foolishness. Now he wants, to, he wants to center them on where we really are in God's timetable. We've come to the acceptable time, the year of the Lord's favor. Lines from Isaiah 49 that he quotes that hearken back to Leviticus 25. The trumpet, actually the shofar, the, the instrument that we blow at our... At our um, Easter vigil service. The trumpet 
of freedom is blown. Debts are forgiven. Slaves set free. And liberty is proclaimed throughout the world to all its inhabitants. And to Paul, that day has come in Christ. And what it means is that Paul wants the Corinthians to open their hearts to be co-laborers with him as ambassadors of God to take the message of this good news to the ends of the earth and to be Christ's righteousness. That is, to model its life right where they are in downtown and suburban Corinth. As the verses just before this week's epistle put it, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Amen, thanks be, praise be, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, God speaking through us, urging people to come and be reconciled and be at peace, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, we might become ourselves the righteousness of God. And this is the task that Paul would have the Corinthians join him in. And that's how he starts today's reading. As we work together with Christ, we urge you not to accept the grace of God in vain. And what it means for the Corinthians is that they think a little, well actually a lot less about their own status, rights, and privilege, spiritual and otherwise. And think instead about how to put their status, rights, and privilege in service of those in need of what they have, a relationship with Christ. And it's to that end that Paul reluctantly points to his own example, the hardships he has endured from flogging to sleeplessness, the Christ-likeness of the character he has sought to embody from purity to kindness, and his willingness even to be misunderstood as a phony yet genuine, as sorrowful yet rejoicing. All this that the Corinthians not narcissistically in a self-absorbed fashion shut down and close in on themselves securing their rights mistaking their wealth for heavenly benediction adopting sexual ethics whether more progressive than scriptures or more restrictive than that are more about ego than about love of God and neighbor. Okay. There are many possible takeaways for you and me. Let me offer one. Recently, the Orlando Sentinel online posted an array of aerial, probably drone shots of the downtown area. The point was to highlight all the development that's going on east and west of I-4. 
from new high-rises and office buildings to sporting and arts venues and educational complexes. In several of the pictures, our fair cathedral, with its distinctive spire and lovely red tiles, stood out, just popped out in the midst of all the building. It was beautiful. And then I sat in front of the pictures for a while and... I got pretty intimidated. So many people, so many unaware of the jubilee of freedom from sin's debt and fear of death and meaningless on offer in Jesus Christ. So many in need of ambassadors of reconciliation to their maker, their redeemer and friend. So many who have no idea we are even here. Enough already! It's too stressful! And then, God bless you. Then I recalled how many of you in our recent focus groups expressed your love for the neighborhood around the cathedral and your interest, your profound interest in us being a spiritual presence, a haven of hope, of faith, and of love for the Lord Jesus Christ in the downtown area. And friends, that is what we want to be. And it's really the only reason for our being here in the first place. Going all the way back to Bishop Gray's call in 1902 for St. Luke's to be, in his words, the center of manifold work and energy reaching out in every direction. So in the next weeks and months, we'll be addressing our stewardship of this place, this place of love that's filled with the prayers of the saints, this place that has been bequeathed to us, and our responsibility to preserve and enhance it for a new generation of cathedralites. And as we do that, I'm heartened to know that you are not interested in shutting down, closing off your affections, hunkering down, and in a self-absorbed fashion, just taking care of ourselves. And so I look forward to us taking our place as God's fellow workers, opening our hearts and our affections to those who aren't here yet, being Christ's ambassadors here where God has planted us. Listen well and pray well when in our Eucharistic prayer the words go up along the lines of open our eyes to see your hand at work and indeed may we take our place in the work that you, Lord, are calling us, are doing in the world. And brothers and sisters, to that end, may the table today and every day be both solace and strength, pardon and renewal. Amen. Amen.